This release of the 23rd edition of On the Rocks is especially exciting for me as I'm joined by Dr. Kerry Johnson, a renowned business consultant and best-selling author of 17 books. Kerry is a gregarious spirit who has an intense knowledge of how the mind works and how to change your thought process if you don't like your state. This is a lesson in the tactics of psychology, how to create a new mindset for new results. Enjoy. So, Carrie, welcome to uh, On the Rocks. This is, uh, you know, interview number two since I did the first one incorrectly. So, oh, Joe, why why we do another one, Joe? <laughs> Even I make mistakes. I'm going to admit that to my listeners that uh, uh, apparently my microphone was broken on the last recording. So. The good news is I'm have a lot more pertinent questions this time around. They're going to be. It's really, a really good rehearsal, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think actually since I last saw you, your 18th book is now out. Yeah. Is it, right. Yeah, it's called "How to Recruit and Hire Retain Great People." So we cover three things. Uh, number one, uh, how do you recruit people? What do you do? Uh, it not only goes into recruitment uh, as um, how do you source people, social media, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, now that we have 3.6 unemployment rate. And there's only a 52 participation rate, which is the lowest in history. Yeah. How do you recruit on an ongoing basis? So, do you recruit because you need somebody right now, and I'm desperate, I gotta find somebody right now, or do I recruit every day, thinking that I'm gonna need somebody in the near future? I better be filling that basket. Huh. The second thing goes into how to hire people. So we're likely to hire people based on us. So if I'm gonna hire somebody, I want them to be. Uh, verbal and talkative, and I want to be fun. I want to like to play golf. Maybe they play tennis. That's my kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. What if you're hiring a ministry assistant, or what if you're hiring somebody's a controller? They don't have that, those kind of personality traits. Mm -hmm. So we have 11 key questions that we ask people based on uh, typical responses that you'd want to see. It makes it uh, objective, not subjective. And the third thing, which is probably the biggest, arguably, is how do you retain great people? So instead of um, uh, asking people when they left, come back and let's, do, let's talk about what you like or what you didn't like, in which they don't want to talk to you because they're already out the door, let's do a state interview. And the state interview is basically saying, let's assume for the moment, but this is a sales technique too, that it's three years in the future. Because all we can expect is people to stay 3.6 years according to current stats right now. Huh. What happened to let you know, this is not only a great place to work, but we had a great relationship. So people don't leave companies, they leave managers. So they're gonna say, well, I guess uh, I made more money and I was able to have a little bit more fun. Um, uh, the job was a little bit flexible. And some things you have to manage, you know, like you can't give that, but most of the things you can. So then every time you do a six month review, you go back to what those three things were. Mm -hmm. Remember six months ago, Mr. Employee, that you said you wanted more money? Um, I think we did that because we built in a better commission structure. And remember when you said you want more flexibility? How are we doing on that? Right. We're doing a great job on that. So now they're telling us how they're going to be retained. So, so, so do you, you, you're, you have 18, as I mentioned, 18 books. That's amazing. The topics, the subject matter, is that kind of what's pertinent in the business environment? How do you come up with your various... Uh, you know, titles. Well, the book I gave you right there is called Mastering the Game. Mm -hmm. It's one of the first books I wrote. And that was that was just a compilation of magazine articles I thought was really good. The other book in front of you right now is called Willpower, The Secret of Self-Discipline. So that book I, I wrote <clears throat> because I have a coaching practice. And I always wondered um, how I could, because being successful in business is really not much magic. It's just doing 
the right things consistently every single right, day. Right, right, right. And if you can uh, be have willpower, and if you can have self-discipline, you're pretty likely to you know make as much fun as you want. So I wrote a book just based on uh, seeing this uh, this lack of uh, willpower within the coaching clients, and if I could give them a book that they could uh, adjust for that. Actually, the one book that uh, my publisher gave me a title that he said, if you write a book on this, we'd like to buy it. And it's called um, it's called New Mindset, New Results. And that, that became a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, I read and it. And that was one that I never even wanted to write. So you you are so, so sometimes that your contacts come to you with the subjects they want. Most of the time the publishers will say, um, this looks like a hot topic like the virtual sale during COVID. Yeah. You know, what do you do with Zoom? What do you do with Microsoft Teams, et cetera? How do you frame? How do you talk? The meeting's more abbreviated. What should we do differently? So that that kind of speaks to the situation. Um, but in fact, the new, the new book right now, uh, the publisher came to me how to recruit and hire, retain great people because it's just so hard to find people right now. And that that book is just prescient. You hmm. know, it's top of mind right now with everybody. How, how many books are you going to get to? What's the end goal? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be probably 25. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it'll be probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm sure, true. maybe possibly it could be. No, but I mean, it'll, do, you, do, you, do you find that you're writing kind of? I know when I write my market commentary and some long emails, and I've, I've dabbled in a few songs and books and things, um, I get more focused. I get more, you know, so that must be an outlet for you to express a lot of your thoughts and talents and just your own, probably sharpen yourself to some degree. Well, what I enjoy doing most is speaking. I love to be in front of 26,000 Remax agents. And make them cry and laugh and cheer. <laughs> you know, I love to be in front of um, um, you know eight thousand million dollar roundtable guys and and just make them just uh, taking notes wildly. I love to be in front of the um, financial planning association. Yeah. And uh, and getting letters afterwards saying I use this technique at work. Uh, that I love that the most. But but that's not here's the here's the benefit of interview number two. That is not something you were ever you know always comfortable with. No, no. In fact, uh, and I said during interview one, uh, and and it's it's embarrassing to say this, but I, I'm a. I don't uh, think. But first of all, I don't think it is. That's the thing. Really, I really admire the fact that this is the whole point of this podcast is to talk about people's largest problems and why they're sitting here today having a whiskey at my house at five o'clock on a Monday. Obviously, they overcame those problems. So yeah, please. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm a social anxiety. I've got really severe stage fright. And Ringo Starr actually was in the back of the Beatles, and he would never come up. He was always like five feet, ten feet back um, when the Beatles were playing because he had stage fright. In fact, 25% of stage performers have stage fright. <laughs> so I used to do everything. I was, I was going through a, a really bad divorce in 1988. I never even know I had stage fright. And um, the plane let us off in Brisbane um, because they ran out of fuel from a storm. So that's actually where I, my first stop was. I was going to have to go from Sydney to Brisbane. So I got there, and the plane was like a day late. So I actually get off the plane at three o'clock, speak at six o'clock after this dinner, and either there was the stress of the divorce or something, and I just went blank. I mean, I couldn't think of what to say. I felt like I was having a heart attack. Um, I, I just, I, it was, it was bad. I could see how people would go to the hospital because they're thinking they're having wow. a heart attack. So I thought, you know, if I could, and I'm a psychologist, so if I could just sort of wear myself out. You know, it'd be, it'd be that'd be great. So the next day, I swam like two miles, two miles in this one pool, back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and I had it again, less. The stage fright, <clears throat> Susie, 
Social anxiety disorder only lasts for like 10 minutes, maybe maybe 12 minutes. So if you, if you can get through the initial stage fright, um, it'll actually come back. You're still nervous. You, get, you become terrified of being terrified. You become terrified of getting stage fright. So this is the, like the social loop. So I went through, um, I really, because I, I love to speak, and I, I went through uh, taking things like propanolol, which is a heart medication, slows your heart down, that, that had really severe side effects. I went through uh, inositol, self-hypnosis. Inositol is the natural L-tryptophan, which you get when you have a, a turkey. You know, the, uh, the slows you down, makes you a little bit uh, less. And the thing that really works the most right now is I'll do a mixture of things. I'll do this thing called anchoring, so whenever I start feeling my stress level go up, we call those suds in the last interview, subjective right, yeah, discovered, I'll put my hands on my hips, only because I will have done that during really relaxed periods when I'm really feeling like, I mean, just not a care of the world, you know, talking to friends or something. I'll put my hands on my hips, I'll anchor that feeling so that when I start feeling stage fright during a speech, I'll put my hands on my hips and they'll decrease it. So that works really well. And also, I'll, I'll take uh, another vitamin supplement, uh, which is called Kava Kava, K-A-V-A, K-A-V-A. And I'll take uh, 200 milligrams of Kava Kava, too. And so, that, that'll relax you a little bit, too. So as, as, and as renowned as you are about being a public speaker and, and uh, all the things you've accomplished, I think the point I try to uh, you know, emphasize in all these editions is that you have the, all the same problems that a lot of us do. You just have your own mechanisms of how to handle them, which is, I'm sure, the psychology behind your... Well, if you talk to my wife, she'd say I have a lot more than these. But, you know. <laughs> She'll, we, I don't think we're going to record her yet, but that's a good idea. I should do this in joint after. Yeah. Be like, all right, I'm going to record you, then I'm going to record you over here, put you all in separate rooms. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's three kinds of truth. Hers and mine of what God thinks it is, right? <laughs> but you let, walk us back to in, uh, to the beginning of the Carey days. You were you were a serious and uh, intense tennis player, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, I played um, uh, college at UC San Diego. I uh, tried my hand on the Pro Tour for a couple of years in uh, Europe. And uh, I learned pretty quickly that you go from Husu to Husi and the tennis were really fast. My era was Stan Smith, Bob yeah. Lutz, yeah, yeah. Um, Jimmy Connors, Macker was after me, uh, Ilan Stasi, the bad boy tennis. Yeah. Guillermo Vilas was the Argentinian left-handed guy who won 58 matches in a row. Uh, that was my era. What about Borg? Was he right around there? Uh, he was my hero too. Yeah. Was he Borg the was, was he the best in that time? He, I think he was best. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had a style of playing tennis that nobody had seen before. So he had this he had this two-handed whippy backhand. Um, he uh, all of, all of us had wooden rackets back in those days. So at the end of my career, that we actually had um, um, max ply rackets, which is boron fiberglass yeah. and wood. And Connors played with the T two thousand, which is a steel racket. So that was pretty amazing too. Was there any? Um, like, I, I watched the U.S. Open this weekend, and I noticed they allowed, quote, coaching. Yeah, happens, first year. Which I was like, why not? I mean, yeah, why not? How, how does it hurt? Matter of fact, they should just put a guy down at his stand. Like, why do they have to have Well, it was funny, because Rafa, Rafa's coach, um, who was Carlos Moya, he said, I don't know what the big change. I've been coaching here for 10 years on court. Well, I'm just wondering back at that. signals and looks and things, you know. I, you know, and I don't know enough about tennis. Um, but do they have, I never really think about this, but do they actually look at people's rackets before the matches and do a lot of inspection? And I mean, back no. in the, yeah, I, I mean, in golf, we go and play. They yeah. just assume they don't look correct. It's kind of self-policed, I mean, yeah. and that's fine. But uh, I remember somewhere watching in Wimbledon, I think it was Djokovic, and I'm not using him as name is, but I think he had little tiny, like little tiny spikes on his shoes that are supposed to be flat, you know, with no 
and he was getting better traction, but I think they cut their sheets out one time. But um, I don't know, maybe other players call it, but I, I, I don't know. There's, there, there's got to be some, like in NASCAR, they have a serious body of people that checks out every vehicle before that thing goes out there. Yeah. So I just wondered back to the, if, in the tennis days if there, it was kind of the wider. No, nothing is, nothing is checked. They, they do have rules for advertisements. So you could see uh, um, one racket company that would be advertised, LSA, who would be advertised. Yeah. You have yeah. to be no more than one inch square and those, those kind of things. Have you worked with professional athletes on there? Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, mental state yeah, out there. Yeah, many, many. Have you, do you see anything that is consistent with guys that are t maybe the corn fairy level or, you know, I don't know, the top 150 on the test? I'm just making up a number. So, so sports, sports psychology is only about one thing, and that's emotional management. It's stress management. That's all it is. It's, it's when you're – so all these people at that level, and number one, it takes so much difficulty to get to that level. I was talking – my daughter is um, 29. <clears throat> and she played varsity tennis for four years, got burned out, never went to, never, went to college, but never played tennis. And so I, I started thinking about what does it take to make a pro athlete? Number one, it, it's almost an impossible thing. Number one, they have to have amazing talent, ability. Number two, they have to have incredible work ethic, willpower. Number three, they have to be able to perform effectively. Number uh, four, they have to relish the competition. And number four, they have to have an ethic that if they lose, they want to give them the next level. But when you're on the court, when you're actually trying to win that match, that uh, uh, that tournament, you have to be thinking, I'm going to forget about the nerves I have. I'm going to forget about being jerky. I'm going to forget about uh, uh, everything else that's going on in my life. And I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to be relaxed and calm myself down and hit the ball. And that is so difficult, you can't believe it. Yeah. Um, there's a woman named, um, uh, I was trying to think which one it was, Iga Swiatek played the, the women's final. And Owens Jabir played the other side of the women's final. And they had a, a middle coach. And I think it was Owens Jabir. She played in Charleston. And the middle coach actually was there on the court. And she would, she would, she would have her hands go from, from her head down to her waist, like calm down, you know, take a couple of breaths. And there are ways that we can actually do that, breathing deeply, um, thinking about something else. So we could calm people down, but sports psychology is really about stress management. Well, and I think in tennis, because you're already jacked up anyways, just because yeah. of the, the running and the athleticism. I, I know in golf, where I play tournament golf, and um, I have little tricks. I throw the ball behind my back and try to catch it in my hand. Like, oh, that's a, that's a tough one, you know? I mean, it's yeah. not tough, but it's enough for me to focus do you, on. You do that to calm yourself down? Yeah, if I'm in between holes, I always walk. Like, this weekend I'll play in our club championship, and I'll, I'll, I'll walk. Yeah. And I'll loop my own bag, and I'm just like, well, you know, that's a way to tire yourself out and lose your, you know, ease yourself up on nerves. Oh, that's you're going to be tired by the time you're on yeah. the 16th hole. But if I'm in between holes and, you know, that's a method. I always usually get, well, I usually go over there with a song in mind. So I'm all, and all the guys are like, what is that crappy 1980 song you're singing? I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry, man. Like, I, so I don't know. I've, I've, I've played enough where I'm, I, I also go into it knowing, like, I'm, very rarely win any of these things anyway, so I got nothing to lose. Yeah. Like, who cares if I'm, I got a day job, so if this yeah. doesn't work out, I'll be fine. Yeah. But those are things you teach yourself. I think golf's a little different though, because you have so much downtime, which may be harder because you have so much time to think between shots. I, yeah. I mean, in tennis, it's like, you got to get going in 20 seconds, so. So there's a really famous psychologist in Chicago named Michael Chizernitsky, and he's Polish, and he wrote a book called Flow. And he said that the best athletes, best athletes, the people who perform the best, the people who do speeches and conferences, and people who um, 
uh, perform the best in any situation, have a combination between getting their SUDS level, sub, uh, subjective unit of discomfort level, one to 10, 10 is panic, one is uh, kind of sleeping, to a six or above, but here's the thing, they control it. They control that level between four and a six, and number two, they're completely prepared. Um, they're prepared for questions, they're, uh, they, they've been to the range, uh, they, yeah. have no they have no problems about putting, uh, the chipping is good. So it's a combination between relaxation and preparation, and that's called flow. I, I, when I, you know, when Tiger came out on the mix, the, um, the way he thought, and this is back when Davis Love and Ernie Els, and this is, he was probably, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22. That's when he won everything. He won a third of every tournament he played in. Mm. That's a big number. In mm. Anyways, he would walk down the range, he'd see people He'd see people working on this and the move, and he's like, "Well, that guy's done. That guy's done." That guy's done. And he <laughs> would. Right he would just tell his caddy, "Like all those people, I've already won. I mean, like I'm not working on my swing. I'm working on where I'm going to hit it in the course." Yeah. You know. So I think preparation is a big deal. But uh, but uh, it was funny watching that Alcaraz kid won this weekend. Um, who was a monster. I mean, that guy's scary. Scary good, by the way. Uh, but he was prepared for, I mean, here is a kid that's 19 that doesn't really speak that great of English, and his first remark was about 9-11. I don't know if you saw the interview. It was like, I just want to offer my condolences. I, I had to see the match without sound, so I'm learning something new right now. But he's, he's uh, Macro, uh, John Macro called it a generational talent. Might be. Once I every mean, four years. You know, it, but I mean, he, I, and you know, 9-11 was on the court, and I kind of, it was yeah. Sunday, and I had to leave. Like, this is 9-11, because I'm used to it being a weekday and the market's closed and all that. Um, but uh, he could he didn't speak like really great English. He just said it wasn't even about the match. He's like, my I want to offer my. Nadal best. never spoke good English in the beginning. Either. Yeah, but I mean, he had the presence of mind at 19 to not talk about this thing he just won his first tournament. Yeah. Just say, hey, it's New York, and I love you guys, and I'm sorry for your loss, which was kind of like yeah, that's, that's charisma. That's a lot at 19. That's that's appealing. To I mean, he had zits. Like you know, he's still working on on things like that. I was like, man, yeah. this guy knows where he's at, but. All right, tennis, you jump to chemistry, psychology, PhD, and so, you, you so, went, jumped to studies. So there. tennis, tennis, I jumped. I realized I was never going to be uh, make money at tennis, so I, I jumped to uh, uh, psychology. So um, I, was, I was really interested in uh, stress uh, things. <clears throat> and so when I was in graduate school, we, I worked at the Veteran Administration as a researcher. Yeah. On my uh, doctor program, I, I was a fast track doctor program for three years, and so we did uh, life change units of life change study uh, behavior, and we could actually predict for the VA who was going to get cancer, who was going to get flu, who was going to get colds, who was going to go through divorce uh, by the life changes they had. So, for example, uh, their numbers uh, divorce was 50 points, death of a child might be worth 60 points. So, anything that got you to 100 give you a predisposition to have a major malady, a major disease, major thing happen in your life. So we try to do uh, predict that for the VA administration. And we also did something called brain plasticity studies. So the, the brain is just an amazing thing, but with kids under puberty, you could actually, and there were a lot of kids that were having lesions, they're having um, um, uh, 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 really bad epilepsy attacks. But when you have ep epilepsy, uh, the action will cause scar tissue to go from one part of the brain where it starts to wherever the lesion ends or the epileptic attack ends. So we had a, a couple of kids who would have nearly half their brains taken out through surgery to limit that, the, the damage of the epilepsy. So what we discovered was, and we were the first team to do this, 
that if you're below puberty, um, the, brain, the brain completely rewires itself. Um, so you can have kids who actually could have a brain and they could be t totally functional. Whereas if you're past puberty, that wouldn't happen. Huh. But my dissertation was actually on something called information integration theory, which is a really interesting way of saying, um, here's a glass of my favorite drink right here. And uh, if I was gonna ask you um, what, what number you would give to the glass, 10 is perfection, one is you know kind of not great, what would you give this? Everything you see right now. I'd probably get 11 given my logos on the front. <laughs> so. <laughs> so yeah, so that's just me. You can't give 11, can't do 11, there's only one to 10. Uh, so right, what ten, you get? 10s work. Ten, ten, you ten, get a 10? Well, I mean, and it's half full. Mm. And, it's, and you're consuming it, which makes it even better. I do like it a lot. So, <laughs> so information integration theory says the brain makes instantaneous evaluations. Uh, it, it forms all this information and makes an evaluation in a split second. And you, so let me tell you why. Um, the glass had your logo on it, which you give the glass probably 10, right? Hold down that. No, okay. Have how, about, how about the size of the glass? What would you give that? Well, here's the trouble I have with the size of that glass. It's, well, first of all, the, the shape, it's rectangular, which yeah. I make sense at the time, but it doesn't fit into my porch chair that has a circular cup holder. So uh, now I view the glass shape as inadequate for me at my stage of life. Okay. So that's the type of thought that goes into my mind. And how would you give the color of the glass? It's better with the, the bottom. Well, rating with the, it's better, better with something the in The bottom right? looks better than the top. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, you know, that's probably seven or eight. Could be a little bit better color. Okay. Well, uh, your bias actually set in because you gave it a 10 because it's got your logo on it. But if it was, if I just pulled it out first time you ever saw this thing, my guess is you'd probably say it's probably seven or eight. And all the things I picked out, all the little small ingredients, all the small details, would average to a seven or eight. So, for example, the, the color of the drink might be a 10. Um, the... Uh, the opaqueness of the bottom might be a five, something, yeah. but it will always average to an eight. Hmm. Notwithstanding your bias for the glass, but maybe I should have picked something else. But yeah, that, no, our, I get, our, our research is on that. I get, the, I like that, and I, I thought it was interesting that you, uh, you guys were doing these long-term health expectations based off a of stress level, mm -hmm. basically. That's interesting. And this was back. This was a while back. This is seventy-nine. Yeah. So this is early. And so you've delved a lot into self-help, psychology, mentality, you know, even the chemistry of the, the brain. Um, I mean, what have you learned over, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the last two years delving into, you know, your, why you make decisions, you know, not just, you know, the, what happens after you make them, like what led up to that decision? Where did that concept come from? How did it not logically make, how did that logically make sense at the time? Yeah. But it's not. Um, but I mean, have you seen an evolution in mental health care in the last 20 or 30 years? Because, you know, it's a big topic these days, mental health and the, you know, it's okay to be not okay sort of conversation. Well, the the web, uh, the podcast is called On the Rocks. Yeah. So in the spirit of On the Rocks, I'll tell you another thing that I don't tell many people. So I had a guy that worked for me named Peter um, in California. It was about uh, maybe two years before I moved. Um, I escaped the People's Republic of California, but Peter was <laughs> was our army infantry in Iraq, and uh, uh, and also I think Afghanistan too. But he had severe PTSD. Oh, man. So Peter was a client from uh, uh, was employed at one of my clients. Peter decided he was uh, he wanted to leave, 
And I said to my client, Peter's a great guy. He's super studious. He really wants to get better. Um, I would love to hire Peter. I got released from my client, and I said, Peter, I'm just going to pour into you. I'm going to just, I'll, I'll make you a complete success. Um, I didn't realize how um, severe the PTSD was with Peter until about maybe six months. He was doing a super job with me, booking me as a speaker. Um, <clears throat> they had a girlfriend, and they had a baby together, and the girlfriend uh, threw him out. And this is over one week of Christmas, and I didn't even see him for like three days. Dang. And I kept, I kept contacting Peter, contact me, where are you, what's going on? And finally I got a hold of him. He came to a breakfast place, he was blasted drunk. Oh, jeez. And uh, I wanted to the car with him, and he had a, another couple of open glass of bottles of wine, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, how long has it been going on? And he said, uh, I don't know. And I finally got him. He's been drinking. He's been totally blasted drunk for five, six days straight. So I took him, drove him to Long, Long Beach VA. And uh, I talked to the doctor. And I said, he's got severe PTSD. He's got flashbacks all the time. His anxiety level is off the charts. He's doing a super job for me. But what's the therapy for this? And I told him what I, I, I said. I'm a psychologist. I'm not a clinician, but you know I know the stuff. So tell me what, what's going on. He said, "Well, all we could do is get medication, try to calm him down, and put him through self-absorption therapy." So I thought this is really interesting, um, and I did some research. It didn't take much, by the way. And I, I looked at this uh, one project called uh, uh, memory dissociative therapy. So you'd actually have the uh, PTSD soldier that would uh, see themselves on a screen, looking at themselves, going through the episode of Friends Killed, an ID attack, whatever it was. And you see them do that, and they experience all the, all the horror that was at that. Then you have the next day, they do it again. Next day, they do it again, and again, and again. So just like when you and I have a memory, and the memory fades eventually, we have less reaction to it. Um, dissociative therapy actually means that you could actually disassociate the event from the emotion, you could do a disconnect. And the psychiatrist at the VA had no idea what I was talking huh. about. So that was super disappointing. It seems like, in my very limited research into this category, that it's a, there's a, it's a broad array of opinions. Some are absolute and concrete, but there's just a lot of different ideas and advice about how to handle mental health. Um, and there's no... I just, I would say from the world of patients, all right, most people, are, I mean, I remember going and trying to find a therapist to talk to after I got divorced, and it took me four or five times to find somebody that I just really could, you know, understand, you know, mm -hmm. actually, I, I was like, this person has some credibility, I can delve into this, and I've heard that a few times, by the way, from other friends, they're like, I'd like to have somebody talk to you, but my God, this person was worse off than I was, you yeah. know, and so I, I don't know. And I'm not trying to harp on the profession. We need that, that mental health more than probably ever, especially coming out of COVID, et cetera. But, um, I, you know, it's not like in medicine, there's these five drugs that work, and there's going to be small variations. I, my, my father was a neurologist. He said I prescribed the same medication 80% of the time. <laughs> it's like it worked. That's yeah. it. I mean, it, some of these drugs are 40 years old. And they, still, yeah. they just work. Um, so I don't know if, you, if there's been a more consistency in that field in the last 10 or 15 years, but... Um, well, I'm not top of the field. I mean, I'm a business psychologist, not a clinician. But, but I do know that the best clinicians um, are going to help you. They're going to ask you questions so that you discover things. They're not going to tell you what's going on. Yeah. So I had a friend um, here on uh, DI on the south side, 
and he's going through this really bad divorce, cheat on his wife, and he doesn't understand why his wife can't forgive him, et cetera, which, you know, uh, uh, I guess you, you, have, you have an opinion. But he said, um, I went to a psychologist, and I can't believe he didn't tell her what was going on and what she should be doing. And I said, yeah, <laughs> this guy, my, my friend, I said, you know, the psychologist is going to draw you out to see how you both can interconnect and work issues out. They're not going to tell you what to do. He was so disappointed. I did that tell her exactly what she was to get up, that kind of thing. Jeez. Wow. So there's two kinds of therapy. Number one is neurosis, and number two is psychosis. Yeah. Neurosis, sure. psychosis. Yeah. The psychotics are, you know, you can manage them with medicine. The neurotics can learn. They can develop. They can, they can do things. They can get through stuff. So, and you've taken this, did you, did you, well, it's funny to go back to your tennis career, did you ever feel nervous in front of the crowd playing back then? Yeah. You did? But it was manageable. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't until I... Because you aren't using these tactics in tennis that you use in speech right now, because you didn't know them, I guess. I, I didn't know So... I didn't know what I didn't know. I just wonder... So if, I was always nervous. I was always a high-anxiety player, but I was always functional. You know, you, you be stressed out but you come up with a, a serve that was like 136 and you blow by the guy yeah but in speaking though you have to connect with the audience and if somebody if somebody's reading their their uh, uh iphone or you know something with their middle speech that's intimidating so it's different and you came to di so we met at the club here at di which has got a unique body of people I'm, yeah i mean this is unique a, is the right word. i mean it is it's and i, I mean honestly it's a talented bastion of folks from all over that I think have just decided that have done well and they've decided they want to continue to do well but they also kind of live there's a balance and, yeah. and I, I respect that I did it myself yeah. um, big move from California to here though what was that all about well uh, again so Maria and I um, about 10 years ago I got really burned out I came back at 3 o'clock in the morning from a flight that was diverted got to LA and I, I called my secretary, and I was just burned out. She actually picked me up, and she said, why are you doing this? Way? How come you're flying so much? What are you doing this for? So <clears throat> I, I talked to my wife as a flight tech for American Airlines. I said, well, you know, we have to make a change. And so every three months, we took a week, and we went to Singapore, we went to China, we went to South America, Europe. And one of our stops was Charleston. Right. And, and we were at the Battery and some of the hotels there, and I thought, this is gorgeous here. This is really nice. Fort Sumter, all the touristy things. And so when we decided to leave the People's Republic, um, we liked, we love Las, I love Las Vegas. I love uh, Austin, Texas. And Marita just didn't like that much at all. She liked here. So we came here in 2020, and I went to the Parkside and loved the golf, loved the tennis, loved the uh, right. just pickleball. Just, it was a pickleball back in those days, but everything was just, just perfect. And uh, we just sold our house and came back immediately. Had to go through a realtor who never kept in contact, but I told you that story. No, it's, and it's, it's, I mean, this is one of those towns where there's a lot of realtors. So, yeah. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's interesting to find people that uh, are doing it as a profession, not just as a part-time thing. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it's, Charleston's developed its own identity. Um, so now you guys have been here for a little over two years now. One year. I thought it was pushing two. Um, April of twenty-one, and we moved to we moved to the club on July first. Okay. So it's been a little over one year here, but uh, you know maybe eighteen months at uh, in South Carolina. And as the um, since you've moved here, has the book production increased, decreased? Oh, know? it's it's increased dramatically. Has it really? Yeah, I've written I've written three books since I've been here. No kidding. Yeah, 
they just crank it out. Is it just because the environment's more? How, how did that come about? The publisher says your date's this. Get it done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's. You want to get paid? I want the I want the book now. Yeah. Uh, and what do you think the most exotic topic you've had is? I mean, is it all been business oriented? Or you've had any? No, the most exotic one is uh, stem cell therapy. I wrote a book called The Stem Cell Cure with the interventional radiologist. Whoa. That's a great book. So you and I were both athletes. We both play tennis. We both play golf. Um, we're we're very likely to have knee problems. I don't know anybody at my age. I'll be 68 in December. There's nobody at my age that doesn't have a knee replacement doesn't have hip issues, back issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I wrote this book on stem cell uh, because I've got two stem cell therapies in my back and it, it was it was magic. I went from an eight level of pain down to a four for the first one, oh. two for the second one, and now I can manage a pain level of two. Um, but I thought, you know, there's so many people that you and I both know that, that can't do sports anymore because they have back fusions or the you know, our, our buddy Billy Estes did uh, a knee right. thing and the person's still not, you know, they're not walking the right way, no no dispersion about Billy, but you know, something it's hard. Just, yeah. it, it's hard, didn't work. I read, um, and I know in your new mindset book, one book a month will make me wealthier, let's put it that way. It was Smarter, better looking, I think, yeah, too, right? Something like that. If it'll make, if it'll make my hair grow back, then, then I definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, do read a ton, I love to read. Um, and I've changed up my routine, frankly. It used to be 5.30, wake up, do your workout, put on the news, see when the markets are overseas, and then start reading the newspaper and then start on emails. I've now segregated an hour in the morning to just read a book. Good for you. Because I just buy, I mean, I'm just, at that point, I'm just blazing through the day. Yeah. And, just, and I don't I don't want to do that forever. I want to have an hour to, you know, seven to eight, I sit on that back porch and I just read and turn the news off. That is awesome. I mean, it helps. I learn a lot. But I just finished um, The Code Breaker, speaking of stem cells. Yeah, I read that too. It was a good book. Yeah, you really know? good. I mean, talk about science these days mm. and how you can basically pick your own baby. Like, whatever you want. Find, I mean, and I, my understanding is there's no international law about what you can you know, gene out of a, an embryo at this stage, you can kind of make whatever you want. And that's kind of where science is right now, which is cool and shocking and strange. And, you know, you, so I don't know where we're headed, but, you know, in stem cells, I understand the concept. I love the fact, though, that you read every day because 92% of the books in America are read by women. And, and, what? Uh, and the books they read are usually romance, usually stories. There's very few, and I hate to say this because I'm a self help writer. But there are very few people who read self-help books anymore. Well, what about guys? What do they do? What guys do read magazines or, or watch YouTube. Guys don't read books. Really? They don't read. Are we kind of Neanderthals? You're an anomaly. You're an anomaly. I'm, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to say that. but Or sad to say, I'm glad you're reading, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> my father was always that way. He was uh, my, my grandfather, who I didn't ever really get to know, um, was an English teacher in prison in Florida. Um, and my father was a neurologist was just I mean I'll go to his home in Kentucky and he, his whole room is filled with he's diagramming sentences in Latin I'm like dude we gotta come up with something better for you to do <laughs> but no That's I mean it's pretty cool it's, they're very my family I'm sort of the the lost sheep of the group but my, my brother has multiple PhDs and is an oncologist and my dad's a neurologist and they're just like you know scary smart where they're dangerously smart you yeah. know where they're they don't know what to do with their brains working all the time. Yeah. So um, we have these long, dark, dark chats, and 
about how to keep your your mind, I guess, engulfing information. So, but I like that about your book. I mean, I try to have people I know. I give them books. You know, I'll read a book and I'll buy four more of them. Matter of fact, we bought some of your books this past week. My team did. So, oh, yeah. Parker was asking me which one. I was like, buy all seventeen. Why, <laughs> Why buy one? Well, come to me directly, and I could give you a better deal. All right, that's fair. Um, I get it. I get uh, about thirty-two sets when you buy a book on Amazon. I, we bought it off your website, I'm sure. Okay. We, we wouldn't go elsewhere. Um, talk to me about what motivates you and the people that you kind of, uh, you know, one of the things I do admire, I looked yesterday at my, my podcast, you know, updates, and we've got a thousand people out there now, which is not, I mean, not bad for just sitting around doing this on the That's island. That's a great joke. Congratulations. Uh, well, thanks. Um, and uh, I was... I was realizing a lot of people that listen are folks that are kind of like us that have maybe had some success in their lives and maybe are transitioning or they don't exactly know where they're going. I'm not saying yeah. you don't, but who do you look for for inspiration, advice, input, etc.? cetera? Uh, well, number one, <clears throat> I love what I do for a living. Number two, um, I, love at, I, I love sports. Sports keeps me calm, it keeps me motivated. I look, I look forward to playing tennis this morning. I'm looking forward to your tournament on Monday. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking for. I look forward to uh, playing around. I'm, I'm playing pickleball. I, I I love sports. That really equalizes me. Uh, my family is super fun. I've got two grandkids. That's pretty motivating. But really, what motivates me is curiosity. Huh. That's I love. I love curiosity. If when you and I talked, you know, uh, this is probably a bad example because we talked to the cabana. And we just chatted a little bit, and I was—I probably had, you know, maybe, maybe a couple of way too many beers. I talked about myself too much. But normally, I'm the guy that will say, "Tell me more about what you do. Tell me about how you got there." I, I'm the guy that's doing. You're the question asker. I'm, yeah, I'm doing. You're the you're doing right now. I don't answer questions in these conversations. <laughs> Turn the mic off. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. <laughs> so that curiosity really motivates me. I love learning about other people and what they do. And I, if if you said. You know, there's a new concept out there which actually can help you play better golf. It's a mental concept. I'm, I'm going to buy that book tomorrow. <laughs> um, the, the thing that I live in fear with is I signed up a new uh, coaching client today and I'm, uh, I, I booked a speech um, uh, on Thursday also. The thing that I live in fear with is somebody said, um, did you read the book blank? That's really important for us. Oh, wow. I never, I never want that to happen. Hmm. Do you, do you have you heard about this new concept called blank? That we, right. we really believe in that. Hey, tell me tell me what you think about that. Do you ever have a so I, we're how can I say this without being arrogant or like ostentatious? Um, you'll know pretty early on when you get a referral or somebody that wants to do business kind of what they're like, you know. And sometimes you'll get somebody that's not the expectations are just not going to get met. Yeah. And so you have to somehow wean them off of your services. Do you ever have those situations where you're like, I just don't think that I'm the right fit for this 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 event? Yeah. And you just tell them flat out. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, if it's a you know, we'll, if it's a, somebody that's referred to us, we'll say, hey, we're just not the right fit. But sometimes it takes us two, three, four months. Then they already are a client, and they start to really, really cause problems. And well, so, most of the time, most of the time, it's they can't afford your fees. And you're kind of you're yeah, kind of helping right. them with it because you really believe in the cause, but they really can't afford it, and they're trying to cut corners, et cetera, et cetera. But I had I, I had a story about negotiation. I wrote this book on negotiating the deal, where this one mortgage company in San Diego 
wanted me to come and speak. <clears throat> and they had about, uh, not a big group, maybe 150. They wanted me to speak at 9 o'clock in the morning on how to increase your business by 80% within eight weeks. They want to speak at uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon on how to reach your client's mind. And then they said to me, um, by the way, th this is a technique called nibbling. We already did the deal. They already agreed to my fee. And that this thing called nibbling, and they said, of course, you're, you're going to give us a book, free book, for each one of our 160 people. Well, you know, it's not without cost. So, so I, I said to, the, to this one lady, you know, I'd love to do that. But we kind of already did this deal. What do you say we, I'll, I'll help you I'll discount the books, but we'll, we'll X out the five o'clock speech. I'll just do the nine o'clock and, and do the books. Is that okay with you? So I nibbled back, which meant demotivate her. And she said, okay, we'll buy the books and you can still speak at five o'clock. What you need to do in those kind of situations though is manage <laughs> expectations. See, you need to be able to say to somebody, what's, what's, what are you trying to accomplish with having these two topics? Well, we want to increase their sales, we want to increase their um, uh, time management, we want to increase their closing ratio. Maybe a better thing to do would be X. Right. Um, no, we don't want to do that. We want to do it our way. And that means maybe you're not the right guy for That's that. That's right. Yeah. That's they're not going to depend on you to be the expert uh, and you're kind of fulfilling a role that they have. You know, maybe, maybe you're the cog in the wheel and not the right place. Well, we, we spent a, a little bit, a good amount of time, like, realizing that you're going to, and we want this, we want clients for a lifetime and generations, but we spend the time as knowing our client and sometimes out of the gate we're like, this, we're just the wrong fit. Your account's set up, we're good, there's no fees. You know, you can just take it from here on your own. Just yeah, and that happens a lot with do-it-yourselfers too. So my clients will sometimes say, and I know you've had this, well, I just want to know uh, what's going to happen in the next six months if I, could, if I should go more defensive, right? So maybe you could charge me just a fee for that. Um, no, we don't do it that way. We. We manage assets. We don't give people a little piece of advice so they can do it themselves. That's just not what we do. Yeah, but how much would you charge if you did that? Right. Well, you know, as you and we, we got out early in this edition. You were one of your biggest things you've overcome. But at this stage of where you are in life, what are the challenges and the big things that you're trying to overcome? Since you've already built, you've already overcome your your. Uh, Fear of being in, you know, making public speeches, which is what you do for a living. Yeah. I mean, are there things that you really? I, I can tell you a few things I'm working on, um, which is a self-help. B telling people no a lot because we're good. we're in the we're in the yes business. A lot of people well, we need to do this, and then sometimes you realize you don't really particularly fit with that particular person in business or in, in personal life, for, yeah. for that matter. And as I mentioned this on earlier. I could spend four and a half hours every morning replying to emails that are really have no relevance to what anybody needs nor any way to increase business. So yeah. you have to, I have to start saying no, no, I can't do that event. No, I'm not going to be a part of that. No, no, no. Um, we've been in a business, yes. So I'm working on trying to find my own um, importance outside of work in kids. Like I love my kids. That's number one. That's my responsibility. Work is also right there beside it. But what I want to do outside of that. I'm still trying to figure out, and I'm okay telling all right, 1,000 listeners that. Uh, but I'm working on it, and I have yeah. a good time trying to find out. And yeah. you know, I'll have a couple pops here, or there too. I'll have some interviews and talk to experts and find out what they're doing. So, for you, are are you dealing with anything that are trying to overcome overcome anything now that you've got? Yeah, to that actually, yeah. So uh, COVID really killed my speaking business. Well, that's true. Yeah, <clears throat> I did. I, I hate doing Zoom. I'm a high contact speaker. I'm up there. 
and I'm, uh, I'm I'm walking. It could be twenty six thousand people. Could be could be thirty five people. And I'm going to walk in the audience. I'm going to kick chairs, and I'm going to say, I'm going to look, I'm going to learn people's names. Hey, Joe, what do you think about this? And I'm just really interactive as a speaker. And you can't do that on Zoom. No, uh, Zoom is just like a one-way street. So I'm trying to rebuild my speaking business, and it'll come. So my goal is to make sure I contact um, three people uh, every day that use referred to me or they inquired about something, et cetera, et cetera. And the second thing is. And, and this just happened like a couple of days ago. So as I said before, I'll be 68 in uh, December. I really want to work till I die. I love what I do. <laughs> I really do. And I, I want to be relevant and significant. I want to be able to make a contribution every single day that I work. I, I tell my clients when I have a new client, I say, hey, listen, if I ever get early onset dementia, you let me know. And I'll go play golf. But until that time, I want, I want to be cutting edge of something. And I, I think, and, and you know, you mentioned that you don't want to be arrogant and um, ostentatious, but I really think I'm at the top of my game. I'm the best at what I do in the areas I'm in right now. Yeah, I, we, I mean, you know, I could tell that when the first time I met you at the club. And that's why, and you've also come and talked to my team, and we've already re-engaged and motivated ourselves to do new things. So I, I concur with all that. And it's interesting, it's, you know, it, Age has become such a random term for me. Like I've talked to people that are 24, and I talk to people that are 84. Yeah. And I have the home realm, and I just never really think about age. I do look to folks that are further along in life for expertise, advice, experience, etc. Um, but I think it's interesting the folks that are 68, 70, 75 are like trying. My stepmom is a perfect example. 76 or 78. Never finished college. She went back and got her degree this past year. Good for her. You know, I great. love that. It's great. I'm like, I just talked to her today. I'm like, Sandra. She's like, I got a test tomorrow. I really got to hone in on this. I'm like, that's awesome. I got a cram. <laughs> well, no, I think that's good. And the and the reality is, uh, Carrie, at this stage, you know, your perspective and attitude, wherever it came from from all these years, means you're going to do exactly what you say in this interview. So, I hope that uh, I hope you realize how important this is to our listeners and. I promise that this one will be right and published accordingly. So thanks, Joe. Thanks for the time.